Our first Bible reading is from Jeremiah chapter 32. Now therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to this city about which you said. It has been handed over to Babylon's king through sword, famine, and plague. I will certainly gather them from all the lands where I have banished them in my anger, fury, and intense wrath. And I will return to them to this place and make them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them integrity of heart and action so that they will fear me always for their good and for the good of their descendants after them. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. I will put fear of me in their hearts so that they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them and do what is good for them. And with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. Our next reading is from Isaiah. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Our final reading today is from Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out her seven pillars. She has prepared her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her female servants. She calls out from the highest points of the city. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, come, eat my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave inexperience behind and you will live. Pursue the way of understanding. The one who corrects a mocker will bring abuse on himself. The one who rebukes the wicked will get hurt. Don't rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke the wise and he will love you. Instruct the wise and he will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and he will learn more. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. Thanks be to God. So welcome to the Summer of Wisdom. I don't know if you knew exactly what you were getting into this morning when you decided to come to church, but we are starting a new series we're calling it the Summer of Wisdom, and uh, we do not believe that just by uh, preparing and arranging a series of sermons in which we take a look at the different aspects of uh, how the Bible speaks about wisdom and how, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called uh, to submit to that and to have our lives changed and ordered around the Word of God, that it is just going to happen automatically. I would even say that one of the great wisdom psalms is Psalm 1. And it describes the one who becomes mature or the one who becomes wise as a tree that is planted by streams of water. 
And it is good to be reminded that you cannot grow a tree overnight, that it takes time. And so one of the most difficult and yet I think appropriate things about about wisdom and about that kind of understanding is that it really can't just be taught in a class. It has information in it, but that information must come and be given to us over time, and then what we need to do is put it into practice so that we might grow in wisdom. Wisdom has a highly applicational element to it. So it's not just about, and it's not just about, it literally is the integrity or the integration of all of these things. I know who the Lord is. I desire to please the Lord. I will trust his words to be true. And then I will practice them. And then over time, we'll find out whether or not that's true or not. And those who rely on the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, those who hear his words of instruction as an extension of who he is, his character and his nature, as we put that into practice and as that becomes a habit, and these habits really do set the direction of our lives, that is what wisdom is. And so it comes to us, even it's interesting, um, one, of the, one of the genres of scripture that has a strong wisdom element to it are the parables, which have an invitation. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It means that sometimes information is given, you know what it's like, you, you warned them, didn't you? You told them, didn't you? And they just didn't, listen, no, no, no I promise you they heard you but they just didn't listen. Now, I promise you, they, they heard you, but they just didn't trust you. Now, I promise they heard you, but they did not do the hard part of putting that into practice. And so the Summer of Wisdom, we'll be looking at different texts from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and there are books in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and the book of James, all have in the book of Job as well, all have elements within it that are known as wisdom literature, which are designed by God to give us insight, hear me, not into life, but into who he is. And that is the key to life, to know the Lord, to trust the Lord, and then to put into practice those things which he has revealed about himself and revealed about the world around us. So that is what the Summer of Wisdom is, is going to be about. And so it just made sense that the first sermon would begin with this statement, what is the beginning of wisdom? Where does it start? And, and the Bible says over and over and over and over and over again. Um, I was really overwhelmed. I've never done, like an I probably don't think it's still exhaustive yet, but I've never really done a full exhaustive understanding of what the fear of the Lord really is. I think um, up until the last few weeks, I thought that the fear of the Lord had mostly to do with the fact that, yeah, we really need to have, how many of you have heard this? We really need to have a reverence for him, a respect for who he is. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Yeah, kind of. It just, it's deeper than that. It's wider than that. That yes, that is true, but the Bible isn't just saying, yeah, you, you need to also have a, love him and have a reverence for him. No, the Bible describes it in much more um, uncontrollable, in a sense, broadly descriptive. 
One thing that I have loved about this study and about this idea is that it has forced me to realize that the truth about my relationship with God is a lot thicker than I have realized. And what I have done wrong is I've tried to thin it out so that I can manage it and control it. So that somehow my understanding of God and who he is, that I I still, you know, anything that I, I don't know about God or I can't understand about God that how do, I, how do I reduce that so that it's at least understandable? And, and all of that are attempts to control or to manipulate my understanding of God so that somehow I can stay in control of him. And when discussing the fear of the Lord, what I have loved, learned to love about this is that I don't understand it fully, and I can't. And so in the end, there is a sense in which breathe, tremble, It's this, but it's more than this. This is who he is, but he's more than this. Do you know that God is this, but also this? And don't pit them against one another. But there is a doorway that the Bible speaks about, this entrance of wisdom, and we don't seek wisdom for wisdom's sake. We're not trying to learn techniques to just manage life. We are aspiring to biblical faithfulness. We are aspiring to a way of understanding God and responding to him Because we believe this word is a clear description of who he is and we desire to know him. And we want this kind of wisdom, which helps us become more like Christ, to honor him and to be a great blessing to others, to be missionally effective in the world where God has placed us, requires wisdom. And the Bible says that the door to that, like the gatekeeper to that, is the fear of the Lord. We read from Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Proverbs, and we could have, we could have been all over the place. I, I really have been just shocked at the number of different verses throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, that describe what it means to fear the Lord. But this might be one of the most consistent statements. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. So there is a point in which we all need to enter if we're really looking for the kind of wisdom that the Bible offers us. Which, by the way, it doesn't mean that you couldn't gain some kind of worldly insights by following Confucius, or maybe you even have a really good friend that seems to get life. That somehow by learning from them and watching their model that you can't be relatively successful in this world, that's not what the Bible is describing about. The Bible actually has as its um, canvas that it is describing or it is dealing with is the entirety of life. From birth, not only to death, but beyond that, through the final judgment of God into eternal life, presence with the Lord, or eternal separation. That moment in which you and I all realize that, Lord, your will be done in our lives. Or God saying to us, okay, if you do not desire me or want anything to do with me, C.S. Lewis says, the Lord says, your will be done. And he gives us over to our foolish choice to build our lives upon something other than him or seeking the glory of something different than him. But wisdom, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. 
which then creates a problem because if there's a, a common phrase that I've been hearing a lot over the last, I mean, probably even 15, 20 years, is recognizing that we live in a time in which there is a culture of fear, a culture of fear that is all around us. It's interesting that the great atheists um, of the early part of the 20th century, uh, a gentleman like, uh, like, like Bertrand Russell in his uh, essays and writings on why he is not a Christian, actually believed that with uh, the kind of the religious systems of the day, that was the root of fear. And what Bertrand Russell wrote in 1927 in one of his treatises against religion, against Christianity in particular, was that if we could somehow remove religion, if we could somehow take religion and a lot of their premises and a lot of their ideas about judgment and about God and about right and about wrong, if we could somehow just get rid of all of that and and make a clean slate, then the one benefit to society, he predicted, would be peace would be the removal of any kind of fear. And that's not been the case. Indeed, I would say philosophically, not just theologically, but philosophically, if there's one thing that we have learned, is that by the removal of ideas about God, and particularly the God of the Bible, we have not seen a release or some kind of freedom that we can experience a a peaceful, joyful existence But there only seems to be a greater level of anxiety that exists. That the culture of fear, actually, as a lot of people are now writing, and by the way, not just Christian people, is that it appears that fear is more complex than we realized. And we, when I say we, maybe I'm talking to moms and dads primarily right now, grandmas, grandpas, in our well-intended desire to just help our children be less anxious or less concerned, even with God, is that we try to remove the fear element from it. Don't make the kids afraid of God. That, that, that won't help. It'll just drive them away. You know what I'm talking about. The marketing of God or the marketing of Jesus so that those things which could cause in you some kind of... Uh, difficulty, some kind of uneasy feeling or uneasy emotion or some kind of a a process that you're going to have to go through that is extremely difficult, if we can just take that away, it's not just marketing for marketing's sake, it's, I believe, a well-intended but wrongly-minded desire to make God more approachable. We even have scriptures to back it up, scriptures that say, you do know First John, that love casts out fear. And you do know that the Bible actually clearly says, the Apostle Paul, that God did not give us a spirit of fear. So therefore, our understanding of God and our understanding of our relationship with him, with him is not one of fear, it's one of love. And so what you and I do as preacher or parent or friend or Facebook aficionado, is that we try to thin out the spiritual experience. So much so that for the sake of your second grader, or interestingly enough, your sophomore in college, 
who may have never really grown up from the second grade. Because you've done everything that you can. And I know this temptation, and I will confess I have failed in this. With the best of intentions to somehow make life and the Christian life and God palatable and understandable and manageable and controllable. And so one of the ways in which I've done that is I've said, yes, we should have the fear of God, but what we mean by that is the reverence of God or the respect of who he is. But as Christians now, let us remember that, and and I create what I have now learned, like a continual kick the can down the road kind of a problem. And this culture of fear that now exists, well-intended as it is, has really not made us stronger. I mean, in reality, there has never been a time in which we have known more about our lives and about our circumstances. Like, we've never had more information about life and how to manage it and control it, and we have never been, particularly in our part of the world, although I'll just say, Canada takes it to a whole new level. This obsession with safety But truly, we've never been more safe. And like in the great book, The Coddling of the American Mind, can I ask you, are we less anxious? Are we less anxious in light of how much we have been able to genuinely control our circumstances? Why did it do the opposite? I I don't have an answer for it. But I do believe there is that part of the dilemma, and therefore I think part of the solution, we can learn from the Puritans. Because what they believed before it just became this eradication of fear, that all fear is bad and that all fear is wrong, or let's redefine it and let's not talk about fear, let's talk about reverence. I get it. That kind of reductionistic reductionistic thinking will still create weird barriers between us and God that will keep us not not being able to fully mature. We will stay unwise when we look at God like that instead of dealing with the complexity. And so what we actually see in the Bible is that there is a, a thickness to this. There is a desire for us to lean into this and to understand this because without it, then there truly can be no wisdom. There can be no maturity. There can be no growth. So all fear is not the same. You learn this in Exodus chapter 20. When the children of Israel gather around the mountain and the Lord descends upon it and with such power that they are afraid. And they say to Moses, do not let the Lord speak to us. You speak to us. We're afraid of him. And then the Lord speaks. And remember what the Lord says? Do not be afraid, in essence, for I have come in this way so that you might fear me. Uh, Is this one of those times where you gotta know Hebrew to recognize the difference? No, same word. This is what I've loved about this study. We need to learn to not be afraid of God by learning how to fear the Lord. Just think about that for a moment. We need to learn to not be afraid of God 
by understanding, growing in, developing, nurturing, desiring the fear of the Lord. In the same way that your reductionistic parenting attempts did not create less anxious children. As a pastor, I confess to you that our attempts to explain God in terms and in ways that made him more approachable has probably also made in us collectively, as I stand in a long line of witnesses who have with the best of intentions maybe failed in some of these respects. Not helped us understand sin or rebellion against God or his holiness. And I'm gonna keep on going. His grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. When you make God in who he is thin, when you remove the depths or the complexity of a, of a statement which is repeated throughout scripture, do not be afraid so I will put in you my fear so that you will fear me so that you will not be afraid. That, that is such a biblical way to speak about who God is and he's, the Bible is not speaking in contradictory ways. It is speaking in a very deep way that we've got to sift through and therefore for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That's the invitation of wisdom. Wisdom is calling what is it? Is this a knock-knock joke? That's how much time I have. No, this is a Norm MacDonald joke. It's going to take 20 minutes. Actually, it's so much more than that. Like, this is a long time. I'm going to explain this to you, and I'm going to explain this to you. And what's really interesting is, is that just like how the Word of God, the Word of God comes to us, and it sifts us, that should make you afraid. And it will expose in you and in me. It will expose in us who we are by how we respond to God. There's, there's, there's more than this, but I've, I've taken in terms of the categories and there's some debate about this. I want to talk about two kinds of fear. There is the kind of fear that we see in Scripture that they like to describe as sinful fear. Sinful fear. The sinful fear is the kind of fear that we see in Genesis. When Adam sins... And his response to the break in his relationship with God. Here's what he's heard. For the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Not fully understanding what that is. He's never been to a funeral before. But it doesn't sound good. Now he's eaten it. His eyes are open. He is exposed. His nakedness is revealed to him. There is a separation in the relationship with God. He knows what God has said, but I would say his knowledge of God is incomplete. And so he does what sinful fear does. He hides. He does what sinful fear does. He removes himself from the presence of God out of fear. I was afraid. I realized that I was naked. By the way, this is, I believe, the way our enemy works is he works with fear to create separation. But when you look at the fear of the Lord, what's interesting is, is that is not the only way to describe it. In fact, um, that's not the only way to understand it, but that is part of it. The kind of fear that is, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want any, any aspect of this. 
is the kind of fear that we actually see, even in, in like the writings of Bertrand Russell. This, this kind of, um, one of the things I found very fascinating about um, in, my, in, in my studies, how much an atheist, not all, but the, the ones, how much an atheist hates the God that he doesn't believe exists. Why the hatred? And I think a lot of it goes back to the garden. It's the exposing of sin. I listened to a really interesting clip this past week where someone was, was describing with very intense and passionate and negative terms the immorality of hell. Hell is just immor- immoral. And how dare any God, mocking now, who does he think he is? How dare he, in light of how I have lived my life, if any God even dared to be like that, then I want no part of him. Wow. You seem so upset about this. It's almost like he's afraid. And by the way, that's, we all understand that response. We all know the temptation to run and to hide and to separate. We all recognize that. But that's not the only kind of fear that exists. There is also a right fear that exists. The fear that the Bible describes. The fear that instead of it driving away, it causes us to stay. It causes us to wonder. It's an inquisitive fear. But I can't get rid of the term for you. And I can't make it more palatable. Maybe it's our worship leader's fault. I don't know if we've done this, right? But we probably have done this, right? And I get the intent, hear me. Have have you ever heard a worship leader say, hey, just, I want you to be comfortable now. As we come into the presence of God, worship in a way that is comfortable for you. I know what they're saying. Like, I get it. I want to preach in a way that's comfortable for you. I want to preach in a way in which you see God as lovable and approachable. What I do not want to do in any way, shape, or form is put a barrier between you and God. No, 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 don't worry. We're working on that. I know there are parts of God's character and his attribute and parts of this Bible that you do not like. We're working on ways to get rid of it. Indeed, one of the most insidious things that I've heard Christians say, and to my shame, I'm sure I've said it, but one of the beauties of listening to other people speak is like, wow, I'm sure glad I didn't say that because that sounded terrible coming out of your mouth. Is talking about the judgment of God like somehow we're ashamed of that or embarrassed by that or we're working on that. Right now there's a whole movement of pastors that understand that there are parts of this book that are really unpalatable for modern taste. And some well-known pastors with the best of intentions who are deciding, well, you know what? Listen, I'm not saying that's not there and I'm not saying that's not true, but the good news is you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about it. Your child's not gonna have a problem with the God that I create for them because I've made one in their own image. And do you see the destruction in that? See, there is a right fear that invites us in, a right fear about who he is, 
sometimes when you go back and you look at really the understanding of the word fear, kind of at its root, it just means to tremble. But when you're in a fear-adverse culture where fear should never be allowed or never permitted or if anything that I hear or anything that I experience in some way makes me feel uncomfortable and I must remove myself or shut down. Wow, you don't think that's, that is a way of hiding. You know that, right? We cannot make the reality of the door, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that is why there is only foolishness without the fear of the Lord. There is a right way to fear him. It's not just, it's not a different word. It isn't. The Bible doesn't give us a different word or a different term. It's the same term. What it is, is it's a different perspective of the objective reality of who God is. Adam didn't know what was going to happen. And so out of his ignorance, he ran away. I totally get it, Adam. Not even faulting you for it. You didn't know the depth of God's love. You didn't know the depths of God's character. You didn't know the way that his step toward you would be one of mercy and one of kindness. You didn't know that he was going to promise you that one would come from Eve who would destroy the one who separated you from God. You did not know that, so you only know to run. But let me give you a fear of God that is related to who he is. That is why whenever we talk about the fear of the Lord, let us remember that what we were talking about is, it's not the fear, but it is Yahweh. The fear of the Lord is a trembling response to Yahweh. Like to who he is. If I told you that I was afraid of something that made no sense to be afraid of it, you would say you don't need to be afraid of that. And then what you would do is you would describe the, the reason why I didn't be, need to be afraid is because that thing could not hurt me. Wouldn't you do that? It's an irrational fear. Why are you afraid of that? That can't happen. That's not going to happen. You, you would literally describe the object that I'm afraid of as something that could not hurt me, that would not hurt me. And you would try to bring peace with the truth about that object that I'm afraid of. Right? Is that not our plan? And the same thing is true with God. Do not be afraid of him. Fear him. And what I mean by that is him. Know him. The reality of him and the truth of him Yes, reverence and respect is going to be part of that. But what we see, what Kristen read, is this incredible invitation from Jeremiah. Again, look at how, I really believe this, our reductionistic desires to make God palatable by making his, the reality of him is so thin is the problem. As we look at the depth of God, look at Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 36. Now, therefore, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to this city, of which you said it's been handed over to Babylon's king through sword and famine and plague. The judgment of God is real. I will certainly gather them from all the lands where I have banished them in my anger, fury, and intense wrath. 
that's real, and I will return them to this place, and I will make them live in safety, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them integrity of heart and action so that they will fear me always for their good, for the good of their descendants after them. Look at verse 40. I will make a permanent covenant. He's talking about what we have in Christ here. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. And I will put fear of me, of me, not just fear, of me in their hearts so that they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them And with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. You know, essentially what he's saying is, one of your greatest fears, how you will truly understand me, is that you will will have a glimpse of, but you won't be able to control, you won't be able to manipulate, like how good I am, how kind I am, how great I am for you. Like you won't understand it. And you'll sit there and you'll go, I don't deserve it. It is so outside the scope of this sermon. I'm going to try to keep it under five hours. I don't know if you guys knew that, but we decided to have the second one much longer. Um, is the connection between fear and love, biblically speaking. And I know, First John says, love casts out fear. Yes. But the bad fear, the kind of fear that we don't need to be afraid of, like fear of judgment, because we know where the judgment has come. But the kind of fear that still makes me tremble in the presence of God. (laughs) No way. You just can't be afraid when you're in love. It's not possible. I'm going to start. Have you ever been in love? It is the scariest time of my life. Isn't it? There's nothing scarier than being in love. Nothing. When someone says they love you and all of a sudden you love them and then you realize, like, if they leave me, I am nothing. That's how I lived my life, making poor decisions. Out of absolute fear that the ones I love would somehow be gone. So what do I do? I try to manipulate and control the relationship. And I always try to, I, I believe, I talk, in marital, premarital counseling I talk about this, that how much this, this dynamic of fear and love is actually connected, and it has to actually do with power. It's a whole idea that I have where I try to manage the relationship so that should something happen, it won't hurt if they leave. How do I manage this? How do I control this? Don't tell me there's not a connection between fear and love. Now do you see why God says, I will be with you and I will never leave you. Like I will guide you and I will protect you and you will be afraid of me. Not the kind of fear that hides, but the kind of fear that moves through the initial overwhelming aspects of your sin and your brokenness that remembers the truth about who God is and then you stay in it and you realize, like, I have no control. There's nothing more terrifying to me. Andrea, can I hear an amen? There is nothing more terrifying to me to be in a relationship that I have no control over. Nothing. It's the fear of the Lord. Similar. I'm not saying it's completely. I think that's what it's talking about. You'll be so afraid of losing me. Like you'll know your sin and you'll know I'm righteous and you'll be so afraid of how I'm gonna handle you. But I need you to trust that I love you. 
Like, I need you to trust that my way for you is, is not to harm you. That the reason why I describe the way that we should treat one another or the way that we should treat our bodies or the way that we should, I mean, all of these things is, is what is best for you. And I'm not keeping stuff from you. I desire this for you and for us. And it is absolutely terrifying. You know why you think God is wrong? Because then you still have control. Do you know why you think that you know better than God on whatever issue of the day it is? And I'm not just talking to young people. You know why it is? So that you're still the one dictating who he is and how this relationship is going to work. Surrender that. You will be terrified. And by the way, in the midst of surrendering that, you will know the fear of the Lord. Peter, I want you to forgive those who have wronged you. If they come and repent, I want you to forgive them 70 times 7. Peter, how? So I'm not in control of this? Like I'm just going to keep forgiving somebody? And they could even take advantage of me and I'm not going to be in? Like what do you mean I let go of these things? You asking me to not have control? beginning of wisdom is the acknowledgement God is who he is God's words one of the descriptions in the Psalms of the word of God is literally the fear of the Lord did you know that it's one of the descriptions of the of the word of God is the fear of the Lord it endures because his word and who he is is so clear And that is why we shouldn't be surprised that in Isaiah, it's describing Jesus. You know that, right? The root, the shoot that's going to grow up. It says of Jesus Christ that he will grow. Uh, in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, and a knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And it says this, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean, that Jesus' delight would be in the fear of the Lord? It means that he would truly know who he is and how he would respond in all circumstances, and then he would trust him. Yeah, but how hard is it for Jesus to trust God, who was fully man and who knew that his life would end on a cross, What do you think he was doing in the garden? God, you teddy bear. And he who did not know sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And yet for the joy set before him, he endured these things. Despising the shame, he embraced the cross. Jesus knew what it was to fear the Lord. But he knew what it was to fear the Lord who would rescue him from the grave, who would vindicate his life, who would use him as a vehicle to redeem the world to the glory of God. He knew him. 
was in a Bible study one time, and a young lady said, and I know her family, young lady said, you know, when I was younger, I, I said to my mom, because young people know how to manipulate their parents. I mean, we won't tell them about this, but we're good at it. Remember when we told our parents, I tried my best, got ya, you can't say anything now. Here's another one. She said, I said to my mom one time, because I thought I could use it, you know, sometimes I'm afraid of dad. Because when you say that, it's dad's fault. But she had a really good mom. And she said to her, the mom said to the daughter, good, you should be. I've thought a lot about that. I know the family. I've thought a lot about that. It could have been good, you, you should be. Um, because you know what? He's tough and strong and he's gonna kind of make you toe the line. That, that's part of it. But the more that I thought about it, the more that I thought, wow, no, that is true. Like I know her dad. I know how good her dad is and I know how loving her dad is. And when the mom said, I don't know exactly what the mom meant, right? But what the mom was saying was, you can trust your dad. You know you can trust your dad. Like the kind of fear that you should have is actually not disconnected from the one that you're afraid of. Like, are you worried that your dad's just gonna throw you out the street for no reason? Well, no. Like, are you afraid that your dad's just gonna kind of raise his hand and strike you across the face? Well, no, he's never done that. Well, what are you afraid of? And she could list off. I mean, it's a very mature family. She, they could sit down and rightly describe what was going to happen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now do you see why it's so important that you know the one that you are to fear? Well, I'm really afraid that God is going to just send me to hell. Let's talk about that. What is God's first move towards you, one of grace? What is God's plan for you that anyone who humbles themselves and believes in Christ? Let's talk about this fear that you might have. And by the time we're done, you will be terrified by the goodness of God. Absolutely terrified by the good. You will tremble at the kindness and the love of God, which is completely outside of your control and ability to manipulate. It will cause you to worship. Let me give you some final thoughts real quick. My sermon in a sentence, I just needed to say all that stuff to get here. Without an understanding of the Lord, we cannot grow in wisdom. You can't. Or at least not the kind of wisdom the Bible talks about or the kind of wisdom that extends into eternity. No, just read Confucius. Or just listen to Job's friends. Job, for that matter. Number two, to know Yahweh is to fear Yahweh for who he truly is. And a lot of our fears about God are not true about him. They're a lie. A lot of our fears about God are lies about him. And, that, and we slip into the wrong kind of fear. Tell me the truth about him. That is why it is so important that we learn wisdom as the gatekeeper for everything else and that we learn the integration of knowing him, trusting him, practicing the truths of God so that we would know him, not just in our minds, but experientially. We would know the truth about who he is. 
And to know Yahweh for who he truly is, I believe, ignites a delight to know him more and to trust him more and to know him more and to trust him more. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And then lastly, wisdom is knowing and applying the words that Yahweh gave us for our benefit as we live in the world that he created, but he's more than our creator, that he governs, but he is more than our governor, that he redeems because he is our father and he is our savior. Wisdom helps us live in the world he created, he governs, and he is redeeming. And therefore, knowing the truth about him causes us to tremble. It's more than just reverence. It really is. It is a genuine, full-body experience to stand before the greatness of God and to realize I'm not in control, but he is. I am not in control, but he is. And what God has given to me, I do not deserve, but he has given it to me out of his kindness. And I cannot control it and I cannot manipulate it. That is why it is good for us to know the full story about God. Can you think of anything that at the same time describes the righteousness and the holiness, the goodness, um, the, the perfection of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God? Can you think of anything that at that one single moment describes, describes God in the depths of who he is? I can. The cross. And it is there that some say, I don't want it. If you're telling me I've done something wrong to deserve God dying for me, I don't get it. You see how the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? But to those who are being saved, maybe that's why it's in the Corinthian letter that Paul says that in Jesus, God has given us his wisdom. It's not just to be thought through. It's to be eaten. It's to be consumed. This is outside of your control, but it is for your benefit. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is the free gift the greatness of God, take it and eat. It is for you and it is what unites us with him. And the cup, the blood given for you, take it, let's drink. And now we respond in worship, knowing that we do not deserve what we have received, but out of his goodness, we tremble or at least we stand in awe in his presence. Let us worship him well this morning, church.